Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. A torrential downpour pummels the rural suburbs of Washington, D.C. as two friends are cut down in a hail of bullets. There's one man dead and another one severely wounded. I just remember going numb, being paralyzed, and I had been shot. As police wade through the muddy depths of the terrifying mystery, will unrelenting showers allow the culprit to make a clean escape? The heavy rain is going to wash away potential evidence. Or will the storm bring a cold-blooded killer to justice? The weather created a lot of challenges, but it was what the weather left behind that enabled them to solve the case. Just 70 miles west of Washington, D.C., between the Shenandoah Valley and the Blue Ridge Mountains, Warren County, Virginia, is used to unpredictable weather. When you're in any of these areas where you have mountains and then valleys, a lot of times you can get really heavy rain in one place, and then it's actually really dry in another place because the mountains were able to squeeze out all the moisture from the atmosphere. And in the fall of 2002, locals are experiencing an unusually long drought. It's a very big agricultural area. It needed rain at that time, that's for sure, it did. It was, it was a drier than normal season. And they're about to get it. On the last days of September, the remnants of Hurricane Isidore, a Category 3 hurricane that made landfall in Louisiana as a strong tropical storm, hits Warren County. As evening falls on the stormy night, a 911 call comes into the Warren County Sheriff's Office around 8.15 p.m. We received a call from a passerby at the Low Water Bridge stating that there was two individuals laying outside of a truck. Warren County deputies head out into the wet night to an area particularly vulnerable to flooding, a rural road near the Shenandoah River. It's pouring rain. So visibility is an issue, A, because it's dark out and you have no lights. And then the fact that the rain is coming down so hard that you can barely see right in front of you. Police can tell right away that something terrible has happened. Through the pouring rain, the officers see what appears to be a truck with both doors open and bodies on either side. They find two young men. One is deceased and the other is severely wounded. Authorities can tell they've both been shot multiple times and immediately call for an ambulance. EMTs arrive moments later to tend to the surviving victim, who is barely conscious. He had very limited breathing. He had lost a lot of blood. He was in dire need of medical assistance. Police learn from his ID 
that he's 20-year-old Joseph Kovaleski. I was laying on the ground. I remember an officer pulling up on scene. That's what I was doing. And I said, well, I'm dying, man. I've been shot. While they rush him to the hospital, the young man slips into a coma. Meanwhile, police turn their attention to the deceased and instantly recognize him as Ty Lathan. Tyree Ty Lathan was no stranger to trouble. At 23 years old, he already had a handful of theft and drug-related charges under his belt. Ty, he was a close friend of mine. He didn't have the stability of a mom and father. He was in areas that were drug infested and that kind of lifestyle grab a hold of you quickly. A lot of us knew Ty. He was well-versed, he was well-spoken, a genuine individual. We had taken an interest in trying to get him on the straight track and keep him going the right way. So when Ty found himself back in the system because of drugs, he was given the opportunity to serve his time in a work release program. Work release? is not a privilege that's given to everybody. Ty had to spend his nights in the jail, but was able to go work during the day and get his life back on track. I would pick him up every morning, and we would go out to Northern Virginia, where we worked, construction. So I was with him from 4.30 in the morning till 9 p.m., so we were together all the time. We just created a close bond. And with only six months left to serve in his sentence, Ty looked forward to the future. We were talking about getting a place closer to the area where we worked. He was really trying. He had goals. I could see him owning his own construction business, uh, maybe owning a farm and settling down with the wife and kids. But any hope Ty may have had for a happy future now lay shattered alongside his lifeless body. Working by flashlight in the pouring rain, police begin their investigation into what appears to be a drive-by shooting. The rain was relentless, and they had to parse out what were the key items that they need to pay attention to so they can solve this crime. They quickly notify their superior, Lieutenant Alan Siebert. It was a very recent event that had happened. The engine of the black truck was still running. The headlights were still on. Police immediately notice a set of tire tracks alongside the victim's truck that lead away from the crime scene and wonder if they belong to the shooter. It was very clear from those tread marks that someone had quickly sped away. But due to the weather, investigators aren't able to find out much more about the tire tracks or the vehicle that made them. The rain was coming down in buckets the tracks had filled with so much water, and it was pounding these tracks to pieces. Investigators continue to examine the rain-soaked surroundings when suddenly they hit pay dirt. Two shotgun shell casings were identified on the scene. They had then picked them up and took them into evidence. Police also find not two, but three cell phones. There was three cell phones there and two people. So, okay, what assumption can you make from that? Does that phone belong to the shooter? Do one of these victims have another phone? Or was there another person in that car who got away? Worried there may be a third victim that might have been swept away by the nearby river, search and rescue teams are alerted to scour the Shenandoah. Meanwhile, Police bagged the cell phones, hoping the rain hasn't damaged all their data. Cell phones in the rain. First thing I thought was, 
dang, this is not good. We had to get them dry, air dry those bad boys, and then pray that when you hit the power button, that thing comes on and has something left for you. Police continue to process the crime scene into the early morning hours as the rain starts to die off. Investigators are left with very little to go off of. They have two shell casings, but no gun. And they have three cell phones, but only two victims. And conditions on the ground are only getting worse. Warren County is actually known for its flash flooding. The river was rising to the point where it would engulf our crime scene. Just because the storm is ending, it doesn't mean the difficulties investigating the crime scene will end. Sometimes, even after all of the rains have ended, conditions are worse because the floodwaters are still continuing to rise. Will police be able to salvage their crime scene before it washes away? As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Torrential downpours and hurricanes, severe weather. It's like the most atrocious conditions to try to work in, especially if you're trying to solve a crime. As the sun rises, the rain is tapering off above the Shenandoah River Valley in Warren County, Virginia. But that doesn't mean it will make the investigation any easier into the mysterious shooting that left Tyree Lathan dead and Joe Kovaleski fighting for his life. The worst of the flooding is not during the rain. It's in the latter parts of a storm. The drought plays a really big role when it comes to how much flooding you're going to have. If it's been super dry, like in this area, when you have heavy rain, it can't absorb very fast into the soil. So it ends up just running off. It happens in a flash. Back at the crime scene, investigators are under the gun. The river was rising. And with that being said, you know, any evidence or victims that would be in the river is going to be further downstream, which would broaden our search area. The fire department arrives to search the river, but because of all the flooding and the rainfall and everything, they didn't find anything. Thank God there was no other victims. Whew, sure would have been nice if we would have found that shotgun. Investigators return to the muddy tire tracks, wondering if the key to solving this case might not be in what the shooter left behind, but what they took with them. They had the forethought of collecting mud evidence because it may come into to play later on. They collect multiple samples and send them to Eric Junger, a detective at a nearby sheriff's office, who's the best in the field of forensic geology. Each of those individual samples, even though they were 10 meters apart, very, very close, could be differentiated from one another. Soils are made up of these minerals in varying combinations, and this helps thumbprint a particular location. Because of the rain, police know that the shooter's vehicle likely took a significant amount of soil with it upon fleeing. And this particular soil, when you mix it with water, it's going to get all gooey and sticky. So we know that someone fled the scene, 
and you're thinking there's absolutely no way that the person who did this crime could get out of here clean. Investigators just need a vehicle with matching mud, but it could be a long time before the soil analysis results come back. It took hours to process the crime scene, but it was going to take weeks to process those soil samples. Luckily, by the end of the day, the floodwaters have held off. And after taking hundreds of photographs and measurements, officers release the crime scene and return to the station to analyze the evidence they've collected, specifically the two shotgun shell casings. Although police know a shotgun was used, they need to learn more about the attack if they hope to catch the killer. Investigators brought in a ballistics expert to help determine the range at which that bullet was fired, the angle of the shot, and where the shooter was shooting from. The ballistics expert concludes that the shotgun used to kill Ty Lathan was fired from an upward angle, approximately six to nine feet away. The same distance between the tire tracks they found and Joe's truck. It was pretty likely that these shots were fired from the driver's side. And that means that this was probably a one-person job. Investigators theorized that a single shooter pulled up next to Ty, rolled down their window, and blasted off at least two rounds from a 12-gauge shotgun before speeding off, spewing mud everywhere. But there's only one way to be sure, and that's to speak with Joe Kovaleski. Two days after the shooting, Joe wakes up from his coma. I do remember riding in the ambulance and going out. I had died twice on the way to the hospital. And then I remember waking up in ICU. The 20-year-old will have to endure severe physical and psychological injuries for the rest of his life because of the attack. I had 35 entry wounds, shattered right humerus. I had seven broken ribs, collapsed left lung, holes in my diaphragm, my stomach, my liver, and I'm blind in my right eye. Based off the number of wounds, police determined five rounds were fired. The doctors kept calling me a medical miracle. But if it hadn't been for the storm, Joe might not have made it at all. Police were patrolling the area because of the potential for flash flooding and the bad weather. So luckily, they were able to get to the crime scene within about seven minutes, and that really helped save Joe Kovaleski's life. Although it's early in Joe's recovery, investigators hope that he's well enough to answer a few questions. Joe couldn't talk at all, but was able to communicate through some hand signs and head nodding. I do remember lots of questions. It was all kind of fuzzy and hazy at that time. There was little things that I remember, but it wasn't much. And he confirms it was only himself and Ty in the truck. But then he remembers something that gives investigators their first big lead. One piece of information he does give to police is that he saw a red SUV. Though he was able to describe the vehicle involved, Joe doesn't remember any other details about that night or the third cell phone found at the scene. So police aren't much closer to identifying a suspect. You had all kinds of possibilities as to what the shooting circumstance could have been. They could have known one another. They might have been strangers. Is this a son of Sam ambush type of thing where two guys just got picked? 
could be anything, but it definitely had a personal feel. It was overkill, huge overkill. Residents living in Front Royal are frightened. In small communities like this, when someone is murdered for no apparent reason, think of the terror that that causes, because who's next? Warren County has a killer on the loose. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Flooding isn't something that just goes away in Warren County. It's stuck around for a while. You don't know if the river's gonna rise up more. The fact that you don't know what's going to happen is this extra variable that you just don't need when you're trying to find a killer. In Warren County, police are looking for a red SUV that Joe Kovaleski remembers seeing before he and Ty Lathan were shot. They also have three cell phones, two shotgun shells, and multiple mud samples taken at the scene. But they have no suspects, and the mood of the small agricultural town is as turbulent as the river's current. The residents were in panic. They were contacting the police. They wanted to know what was going to be done with a potential killer on the loose. They don't know if they're next or their children. And the pressure on the police to try to come up with an answer is profound at this point. You want to assure the community that it's not gonna happen again. We had to get to the bottom of the case. As Joe continues to heal, police pay him another visit to see if he's able to remember any additional information about that fateful night. Officers repeat the same questions as before. Only this time, Joe is able to speak, and he remembers a little more. They ask him, is there anyone who would have anything against Ty? Joe tells officers that his friend was being lured back into the drug-dealing lifestyle by an unexpected source. What he said was that the work release program that Ty was involved in was actually run by a dirty cop named Kevin Kinsey. Kevin Kinsey was a newer sheriff's deputy. He had just started, I think, maybe six months within the job, and he was pretty young. He was using drugs that Ty was providing for him, also getting money by having Ty sell drugs in the work release. It was an arrangement that seemed to be out of character for Ty, who was turning his life around. And according to his friend Joe, it was one he couldn't easily escape. I imagine the sheriff's deputy leaned on him, so to speak. And uh, I think that Ty, he had ultimatum placed upon him that he had to do this. Detectives are floored. If true, Ty's involvement with Kinsey certainly provides motive for the deputy to want to silence him for good. Ty would be vulnerable in this situation. Did Ty do something, say something? Were there threats? The fact that Kenzie is a policeman means that he's been trained. This means that Kenzie would know precisely how to take advantage of a storm that could wash away evidence, leave less of a trace of what had gone on. 
But police know they're going to need some help looking into Joe's story. When you have the possibility that somebody in your own has done something like that, there is a real sense to right that wrong and be as transparent as possible. And so I had the FBI help us with the investigation. While the FBI looks into Kevin Kinsey, investigators focus on the three cell phones recovered and hope the weather hasn't destroyed them completely. Serial numbers are not going to be washed away, so I knew that I was going to be able to trace the phones back to the owners. But we were fortunate. About 36 hours, 48 hours of drying time, bam, those bad boys came on. Nowadays, a tremendous amount of data can still be recovered from a phone that's been submerged for days and weeks in bodies of water. As expected, police learned that one cell phone belongs to Ty, and one is Joe's. The third phone is registered to a name that hasn't come up in the investigation at this point, a woman named Julie, who lives about an hour away from Front Royal in Annandale, Virginia. So officers think, who's Julie? Where does she fit into all of this? And when police obtain cell phone records, her name pops up again. They discovered Julie owns another cell phone that was used to call Ty 22 times in the hours before he was killed. Police wonder why this mysterious woman would have two cell phones and why give Ty one of them when he clearly had his own. 22 calls indicate something's going on. Was this harassment? Was Julie the shooter? Was she a witness, part of a love triangle somehow? They had to figure all this out. The next step for police is to speak with Julie in person. It's her phone. Why does Tyree have it? That's a big question. With torrential downpours long gone, investigators are about to discover that Mother Nature is the key to cracking this case. The suspects can never compensate for the weather, and that's good for us. Storms, and then they had what you call an Indian summer, and the temperature just spikes up real quick. So this was one of those unique situations where the weather started to heat up, and so did the investigation. Since the ambush shooting of Tyree Ty Lathan and Joseph Kovaleski near the Low Water Bridge, investigators are hoping geologist expert Eric Junger finds something in the soil samples from the crime scene near the Shenandoah River that will help them catch a killer. The first thing Junger's got to do is sift and then repeatedly sift the soil to separate the fine from the coarse material. Pete finds vegetation, clay, the things you'd expect to find in a soil sample. But what he's really looking for are those particular markers, those things that are unique to that place. The two minerals in particular that were interesting to me were the high concentrations of azurite and malachite. Azurite is a brilliant blue color, and the malachite has this green emerald appearance. Azurite and malachite are both rare minerals located in a quarry a half mile upstream. They are forms of copper, and they're very specific to this region. 
In all parts of the country, certain soils have certain markers and they can actually mark a region and determine where the specific soil came from. Because of the heavy rain and flooding from the storm, the river's current moved the minerals downstream into the area of the crime scene. It got broken into such small fragments that we couldn't find them anywhere else nearby, above or below the quarry. Now, investigators just need a vehicle with matching mineral remnants to connect them to a perpetrator. Meanwhile, they've zeroed in on two persons of interest, a sheriff's deputy named Kevin Kinsey, who is alleged to be a dirty cop, and a mysterious woman named Julie, whose call history and two cell phones tire to the scene of the murder. The FBI has now taken over the Kevin Kinsey portion of the investigation because of conflict of interest. So investigators focus on Julie. They learn from her cell phones that she lives an hour away in Annandale, Virginia. And as soon as deputies arrive at her apartment, they can't believe their eyes. One thing they notice right off the bat is that there is a red SUV parked in Julie's apartment complex's lot. And on the vehicle's wheel wells and body is a noticeable amount of mud, similar looking to that found at the crime scene. They find this same car an hour away in an urban setting. And it's like, well, why would you have this mud stuck on your car? It just doesn't seem to make any sense. Police have a number of questions for this mystery woman. And they begin by asking her about her two cell phones, the one that was found at the crime scene and the one that called the victim 22 times. She explains that she's friends with Ty and loaned one phone to him, but the other doesn't really belong to her. It belongs to her boyfriend who lives with her, 26-year-old Lewis Feltz. She says it's Lewis's phone. She goes into the point that, you know, his credit's bad, he can't get one, that sort of thing. And I say, well, the main thing is it's his phone. Okay. Does he let anybody borrow that phone? Nope. Did he let anybody borrow that phone that night? Nope. Okay, great. She says she has no idea who would have killed Ty. She says she was home watching TV that night with Lewis. And when they ask where her boyfriend is now, she claims she doesn't know. But police aren't so sure. So in our minds, he could be a suspect. It could be both of those individuals. You know, you can't just assume it. When investigators ask her who owns the red SUV parked outside, she admits it's Lewis's vehicle. So at this point, the police do have ample circumstantial evidence. They have Julie stating that the red SUV belonged to Lewis and that the cell phone belonged to Lewis. While the information detectives learn from Julie is huge, they decide to wait before doing anything until they can get more physical evidence. Said, we're just going to follow him. If he comes out, gets in it, and drives, we're going to follow him. They know they're not going to let the suspect's vehicle escape. As police keep a close eye on their newest suspect and his girlfriend, the FBI updates them about what they've learned regarding Kevin Kinsey's role as a potential suspect. When Kenzie was working this work release program, it was learned by investigators that he would accept and distribute drugs for inmates' personal use. 
Kevin Kenzie basically was a criminal with a badge. He abused his authority, and he knew he had a certain power. He could control inmates and profit from them. While his dealings with Ty Latham are criminal, they're not distinct from the way Kenzie interacted with any of the other inmates in the program. There's really nothing connecting him to Ty Latham and that crime scene at the Low Water Bridge. So police dismiss Kenzie as a person of interest in their murder investigation. They have their eye on two others. He wasn't the person that actually did it. He was off the table. We were headed towards Feltz, towards Julie, either one of them or both of them being involved in it. But police wonder why Julie or Lewis would want Ty dead. They speak with several of Ty's friends and learn that the drugs Ty was getting to sell in the work release program for Kinsey were actually coming from Lewis. Julie and Lewis had been seen around the work release center. They were all drug dealers together, and there was also indication that Ty dated Julie. There was always speculations that Ty was sleeping with uh, Lewis's girlfriend, Julie, but he never told me that he did. They find out that Julie had a flirtatious personality, and sometimes Lewis felt that she was a bit too close to Ty. There was some sort of relationship, some connection between Julie and Ty. They'd been seen being rather friendly together. Lewis seemed to be jealous of the relationship between Julie and Ty Lathan. Warren County investigators have to wonder, was this a drug deal gone bad or a potential love triangle? Two days later on October 3rd, 2002, police are outside Julie's apartment where Lewis lives, keeping an eye on him and his muddy red SUV. In order to build a strong case, police decide to wait for the search warrant. I would rather have the search warrant in hand, showing that we had a legal right to be in the residence. It's then that they see something that causes them to speed up the wheels of justice. Lewis comes out of the building, grabs cleaning supplies, and he's opening all four doors. The detectives in this case recognized the immediate danger of that because had he started washing his vehicle, any gunshot residue, soils, all that could be lost. Police know they need to act fast and get their weapons ready. If this guy is our shooter, he may shoot back, and we end up shooting him in the process. You know, a lot of things could happen. They've got one shot to get it right. I said, we're taking him. It's on. When police first arrived at the Low Water Bridge in Warren County, Virginia, on the night of an unrelenting rainstorm, the chance of finding Joseph Kovaleski and Ty Lathan's attacker seemed slim to none. When the investigators first roll up, they were completely deflated, thinking, great, we're never going to find this guy because of all of this rain. But investigators caught a break when a third cell phone found at the crime scene led them to an apartment in Annandale, Virginia, where Lewis Phelps and his girlfriend, Julie, live. It's established that Julie and Lewis do know Ty, but they were both home in her Annandale apartment during the time that it happened. But police aren't buying it. 
Louis Feltz is the owner of a red SUV, the same kind that Joe remembers seeing before hearing gunshots and losing consciousness. And the wheels are covered in mud, similar to what was found at the crime scene. Finding mud in the wheel wells of an SUV doesn't make Louis Feltz a killer by any stretch. But when investigators catch Feltz about to clean off his SUV and destroy all of that mud, they decide to make their move. We took him right there. And of course, he wasn't happy about that. Police arrest Feltz and charge him with the first-degree murder of Ty Lathan and attempted murder of Joe Kovaleski. He refuses to talk without a lawyer. Meanwhile, officers enter the apartment but find no sign of Julie. She left the apartment before we got up there. I had no clue where she was at. Had bigger fish to fry at the point. Investigators waste no time searching the apartment and confiscate numerous amounts of drugs and 12,000 in cash, but no murder weapon. They have the entire SUV sent to the lab to be examined by forensic technicians, including the mud around the tires. With all the rain and all the mud, it sticks to things. And because of the uniqueness of the area, that particular soil is almost like a GPS and can be tracked if it's found somewhere else where it doesn't belong. They'll have to wait for Eric Junger to analyze the soil samples and compare them to the ones collected at the crime scene. Meanwhile, investigators still have some heavy lifting to do in order to prove Louis Feltz is their guy and also untangle Julie's possible involvement in the attack. Right now, police have a lot of circumstantial evidence, but they need a conviction at trial. Police continue to talk to friends of the couple and are able to find a witness that puts just Julie at her apartment at the time of the murder. So they let her off the hook. So there's very good evidence that she wasn't at the crime scene. She wasn't part of it. But when police look closer at the records of the cell phone listed in Julie's name that belongs to Lewis, they find another piece of the puzzle. The 22 calls placed to Ty's phone before he died came from Lewis's cell. And the cell towers placed that cell phone traveling from Annandale to Warren County. Show the suspect's cell phone pinging as it's coming to Front Royal. There's a time frame when the call stops, it stops transmitting, we get the 911 call, and then all of a sudden the cell phone comes active again and starts pinging cell towers all the way back, and that number is known to be his. This puts his cell phone in the vicinity of the crime scene at the time of the murder. But it's still not enough for investigators. They still need to prove that Lewis Feltz was at the crime scene. And the result of all that rain, the mud, could actually help investigators find exactly what they're looking for. On March 13, 2003, Junger finishes his examination of the soil samples from the red SUV. The soil contains the same minerals azurite and malachite that were found at the crime scene. Thanks to the remnants of Hurricane Isidore moving through the area, Junger was able to positively match the mud samples. It had been raining for so long throughout the entire region that the roadways, the interstates, and even all the way out to Annapolis were washed clean. 
So when I was examining the soil samples from the vehicle, all I found was crime scene. There's no way that these two minerals would be found on the red SUV unless the red SUV was in the region of the crime scene. No explanation. Because of the mud, police can now conclusively put Lewis Felt's vehicle at the scene of the crime when the attack took place. But will the mud evidence be enough to secure a conviction? I always say you can't mess with Mother Nature, right? It's just too powerful. After exonerating Sheriff's Deputy Kevin Kinsey and Julie as murder suspects, police have a solid circumstantial case against Julie's boyfriend, Louis Feltz. Detectives have been able to prove that Feltz's cell phone and red SUV were at the crime scene at the time of the attack. Now all they need is a murder weapon to place in his hands. The police are still trying to find the one crucial piece of evidence that can make their case, the shotgun that was involved in the shooting. That's when a friend of Ty's named Mike comes forward and tells police that he sold Lewis a shotgun a few weeks prior to the murder. He takes police to a small clearing where they had fired the gun during the sale, and police find nine spent shotgun shell casings on the ground. Shell casings really do tell a story. They're as unique as a fingerprint. When the firing pin strikes the primer to expend that projectile, it leaves a distinct mark on the backside of the casing. The firearms examiner compares the shell casings collected to the two empty shells found at the crime scene. All nine shell casings were an exact match to the shell casings that were found in the crime scene. The weapon that Mike sold to Lewis is the same weapon that killed Tyree Lathan. That's huge. We don't have the gun, but we got the next best thing. The power of weather is strong, but not strong enough to wash away ballistic evidence. As the prosecution prepares for trial, Joe gets stronger every day and finally remembers more details about the night he and Ty were shot. That was very stressful. I had to meet with detectives once a week, sometimes two or three times a week, go over dialogues and, and go through just recounting what happened. Based off the evidence and Joe's memory, investigators believe they have a clear picture of the events that occurred on that fateful, dark and stormy night. Police surmised that Ty and Lewis had planned to meet just before 7 p.m. at the Low Water Bridge. It was my impression that Ty and I were going to meet up with Lewis, just hash out everything we needed to hash out for the night. Investigators believe Lewis was calling Ty repeatedly while he was on his way to meet him to make sure he didn't go anywhere. Ty had to be back to the work release, and he was getting antsy and anxious. Now it's dark. It's starting to downpour heavier and heavier. It's hard to see, and it's an area that's not lit. There's no lighting out there. That night, when there's a big thunderstorm out, no one's going to be out there. For someone that wants to commit a crime, you're secluded, and you feel like you're in the middle of nowhere. It seems like the perfect place. 
police think Lewis was upset with Ty and decided to permanently end their relationship. I think maybe in his mind he thought that Ty might be an informant, which he was not, and that Julie was having a relationship with Ty, which maybe she wasn't either. I don't know. Investigators believe as soon as Lewis pulled up, Ty started to get out of the truck, and that's when Lewis took out the shotgun. I remember Ty saying, I'll be right back. I looked over, and uh, I, I, I see two uh, flashbangs. And my whole body just went into complete shock and pain, and everything happened so quick. Ty Lathan died almost instantly. And police think Joe was just collateral damage. There was no question in our minds. That was the plan. That was the whole reason for the meeting. It wasn't a drug deal gone bad. It was just a flat-out homicide killing. As he rushed to get away from the scene, police believe that's when Lewis left the tire tracks and kicked mud up, placing those specific minerals, azurite and malachite, all over his vehicle. All the circumstances, the rain, the flooding, the hydrodynamics within the quarry that moved the samples, the weather, frankly, was indispensable to us in this case. The darkness and that rain proved a great cover at first for Lewis Feltz. He didn't count on that rain and the mud it created, creating evidence that literally stuck to him. On May 16, 2003, faced with the evidence against him, Lewis Feltz makes a deal and pleads guilty to two counts of use of a firearm in commission of a felony, attempted first-degree murder, and first-degree murder. He had what's called an Alfred plea, and that's a very specific legal term. That means he does not admit to actually committing the crime. All he admits to is that the prosecution has enough evidence to convict. He is sentenced to 25 years behind bars, and is set to be released on May 12, 2025. It made me feel a little bit better about, you know, knowing that he wasn't get, totally getting away with it. Despite his killer being behind bars, the death of Ty Lathan is a painful loss felt by all who knew him. It's a waste of young life. There is nothing that's going to bring him back for his parents to watch him walk down the aisle and get married or start a career doing something. You come in the room, he make you smile, he make you laugh. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm sorry. And while former sheriff's deputy Kevin Kinsey is found not to be directly responsible for Ty's death, on May 29, 2003, he pleads guilty to five federal drug distribution counts and is sentenced to three years and four months in prison. He was released in 2007. In the murder case of Ty Lathan and attempted murder of Joe Kovaleski, there was one very important piece that was overlooked by their attacker, the weather. Many suspects nowadays learn different ways in which to perfect their crime because they'll watch TV shows, but they can't compensate for the weather because it is such a dynamic, unpredictable force. You just can't learn about that. Mother Nature will always be the one that will be stronger than you.